0: Well, welcome everyone to the Sunday School Room. Um, I am really glad to be here and glad to see you all. I guess you heard me upstairs, but I'm Amy Julia Becker, and you're going to learn a little bit about me as I speak this morning. What I hope I will do is speak uh, for I don't know 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions and conversation. Um, and I'll certainly be around afterwards to have some conversation as well. So um, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, and if other people try to come in, we'll like squeeze them on the floor or something. So just you know shuffle as needed. Um, So some of what I'm saying I think actually dovetails with what we were just hearing and talking about. Um, And I'll be interested. I don't know how many of you saw the film Normie last night. But if you did, you might recognize me because um, I'm in it. And I'm also going to be talking about our daughter, Penny, who's also in that film. So just to give some context for some of you, um, and you may also get a chance to see that I heard this afternoon, which is awesome. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, Our daughter, Penny, I'm going to start with her because she was born over 13 years ago, our first child, I was 28 years old, married and from a pretty um, conventional social upbringing for a white person, okay? So I had relative affluence, lots of education, lots of expectations that I didn't even actually knew I brought with me into the hospital when my daughter was born. Had been married for six years to my high school sweetheart um, and there were lots of things about our life that looked um, what I would have said pretty typical and conventional. And when Penny was born, she actually was a pretty easy birth. She had a shock of black hair. She had a cute little nose and big blue eyes and round cheeks. And I had what I think the feeling many people experience of giving birth, which is a feeling of wonder, of delight, of receptivity, and of love. So I was holding Penny in my arms. My mom, my sisters were there. My husband, of course, was there. We were celebrating together. And the doctors took Penny out of the room just to do a few more tests. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. But two hours later, a nurse called my husband out of the room. And when he came back, his eyes were filled with tears. And he said, they suspect that Penny has Down syndrome. I didn't know anyone with Down syndrome, I had no context for what Down syndrome was, other than that it sounded negative, and scary, and different. And so all of a sudden that sense of light, and warmth, and love, and peace, and joy that I was feeling as the mother of a newborn baby, um, it was like being in a hot tub and all the water seeping out. So you're just kind of shivering and feeling like it's empty. And I was filled, really, if I look back on it, the love wasn't gone, but it was overshadowed by a lot of fear. And that fear came from a number of different places. So there was fear about what is her health going to mean? They're doing an emergency echocardiogram because babies with Down syndrome often have heart defects, and maybe we're going to be having surgery soon, right? So there were actual immediate health concerns. As it turned out, none of those were a problem. She was... um, able to come home from the hospital two days later. But at the moment, I didn't know that. So there were those types of fears. There's the fear that came associated with the words intellectual and physical disabilities and delays, because again, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. But beneath those fears, there was also a fear of what would it mean for my child to grow up in our culture. There were social fears, knowing that she was being born into a history of exclusion and discrimination And if I was honest about it, knowing that I was someone who participated in, not wittingly, not actively, I had never said anything negative about someone with an intellectual disability, I had never actively advocated for the exclusion of someone with a disability, but, if I looked at my life and I looked at my heart, I knew that I was a person who was biased against people with disabilities because as someone who had always valued achievement and ability and appearance and the life of the mind, being told that I was going to have a daughter who did not conform to social expectations when it came to those things, it was very scary to me. And what it exposed in me was a lie that I had at my core. And that lie was that identity comes from ability, that what I do tells me who I am. And we can measure that. We can see it from the outside, and we can claim it. And so when I started to see, this started to get exposed in me. First of all, there was a lot of fear. Second of all, there was just grief, because that wasn't who I wanted to be. And there was a process of starting to unlearn that understanding of identity and instead to learn a different way. What I found in the hospital, even when all that fear, all that grief, all that emotion was going on, was that when Penny was in my arms, the love returned because she was just my baby girl. That was what was going on in those moments. It was only when she was an abstract concept when she was not a person in my arms, that's when it was scary. And what I wondered in that moment, in that time was, is love stronger than fear? Is it big enough to get over my fear of being her mom, my fear of what life will look like for her as she grows up? my fears about myself, my fears about our society, is love stronger than fear? And it really led me on a journey, not only to figure out what it meant to live in love as it pertained to my child, which is obviously very important, but also what it meant to live in love as it pertained to myself, and as it pertained to all the other human beings that I encounter. So is love stronger than fear? That's kind of the question for us. I'm gonna pause for a minute though, because there's a group of people over here who might be able to scoot over there if you want to try, uh, so we can get a few more people in the room. So let's adjust for a moment. Let some people in. Sardines. I know. I'm I'm relatively small, so. Someone can sit at my feet, but we don't need to do that. So it's like, this is what New Yorkers do, right? You make a lot out of small spaces. Yes. All right, I think we're getting like two more chairs, but I'll, go, I'll keep going, okay, so please, yeah, settle yourselves as you wish. So if I look around right now in our culture, I see a lot of fear, um, and that's true on an individual level. There was just a Gallup poll that came out this week that said, like, American rates of fear and anxiety are higher substantially than other developing countries developed countries and also higher than they have been in the past so fear and Anxiety is on the rise when you just are measuring it on an individual level and we can talk about why that is There are all sorts of reasons for it, but it's also something that we see on a more a cultural level right so we see that there is a cultural division and animosity. I think it gets exacerbated because of social media and because of our political climate. Uh, but we see a lot of fear. And what happens when you're afraid is you retreat and hide. And so you go back into the space that feels the safest and set up walls and defenses about uh, against anyone who is outside of that safe space. So we see a lot of fear, we see a lot of anger, we see a lot of social division, and one way to describe that is in talking about social division to say we have people who are people of privilege and people who are excluded from that privilege. I started thinking about this most actively when Penny was born, because on the one hand I had a child who was born into what we would call privilege, into whiteness and wealth and education and opportunity. And on the other hand, I had a child who was born into exclusion, knowing that within my lifetime, kids with Down syndrome were not guaranteed the right to a public education. That 50 years ago, kids with Down syndrome were routinely institutionalized rather than living at home. So there was a sense of, she is both on the inside of the same world that I've always been in, and she's excluded from it. And it made me start to ask, what is my job as someone who does have these social advantages, um, how do I respond not only to the exclusion that Penny's experiencing, but to exclusion more generally and more broadly? So let me pause for a minute, define my terms before we keep going. The word privilege is a word that can be kind of a hot button word. It can provoke a, a feeling of accusation. That's true, I think, especially among white, wealthy, educated people. Um, It also can provoke a sense of shame. I was speaking this fall, um, and a white man was in the audience, and he said, you know, I just feel sometimes like I want to put a paper bag on my head before I walk out the door. So what does it mean for him, as a man who's acknowledging the social advantages that he has, at the same time to be a white man, to walk around in our country, and to actually live with hope and love and generosity rather than shame? What does it mean for someone who's on the inside of privilege or on the outside of privilege to live in love? How do we do that? Those are the questions I've been asking. And what I've seen is that privilege as a word, it began talking about legal benefits and advantages that some people got and not others. Voting rights may be the easiest way to understand that, that when our country was founded, if you were a white man who owned property of a certain age, you could vote. And you all can do the math in terms of who was not in that privileged group. And voting rights have expanded over time to expand that privilege. right? And we've seen that in legal terms in our country for many hundreds of years, that some people have a legal advantage and others do not. But we also see it in social ways. So it's not legally constructed, but you see social science studies all the time that demonstrate the one I heard most recently. If you have a picture of um, a black face and a white face who are both quarterbacks in the NFL, and the same description of the two individuals written underneath it, and you poll people, people of color or white people, and say uh, which one is uh, more intelligent, the same description of their credentials and what they've accomplished, the white person is deemed more intelligent. Which is literally, there's no way to explain it other than I see that face and this is what comes to mind. And we see, so that's a social advantage that has nothing to do with accomplishment or criteria. It just has to do with what we would call an innate bias or an implicit bias. So thinking about what it means to be a person of privilege or what it means to be excluded from that privilege, it's easy, again, to go to that place of fear of division, of shame, of harm. And so it's easy as a result as a culture to say, let's hide from that because this is unpleasant. Who wants to enter into a place of shame and anger and division and fear? Unless there is a way to do that that offers healing and hope. And that's where I actually believe that people of faith have a tremendous opportunity in our culture right now to offer spiritual, tools and practices for healing and reconciliation that our wider culture actually wants because we're starting to see the harm of these divisions, the harm of both the individual fear that people feel and the broader cultural fear, but we don't know what to do about it. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates. He is an atheist. He writes for The Atlantic. He's done some really important work. And one of the things he wrote in one of his articles um, about racial injustice and the case for reparations, as he said, we need a national reckoning that will lead to a spiritual renewal. And I was so struck in reading his call for a spiritual renewal because he's also said, I'm an atheist. I, I don't believe that there is a God. And yet you'll see in lots of writing about these things, America's original sin. The soul of our country, the angels and the demons, these are all words that are used in book titles in the secular aspect of our nation to talk about all these divisions (laughs) and all this fear that we are experiencing. And what I believe is that actually Christians have something to call forth, to call upon, that can provide healing. The short answer is love which can sound like hallmark greeting cards and Valentine's Day and is not at all what a biblical understanding of love is about. So I want to talk about what love is um, and how we are invited to participate in the healing work of love in our world. Um, Social divisions are not new. Okay, so we are experiencing them in our own particular ways in this country, but they are actually a part of that distorted humanity that we were hearing about earlier this morning. And social divisions were real in Jesus' day and when Paul was writing as well. So if you get to the book of Ephesians, what Paul is actually writing about there is unity in the church, that's one way to see it, or social divisions in the church, because you don't need to be talking about unity unless there's division. And you get to chapter 3 in Ephesians, it's at the center of the book, and in chapter 3 Paul says, the mystery of the gospel the mystery of the gospel that has finally been revealed to us is that the Gentiles are God's children too. And honestly, as a Gentile Christian, I read that and I'm like, that doesn't seem mysterious to me. Like, of course I'm in, right? Like, I've known this my whole life. But it was mysterious in Paul's context that this was not just a set of promises for the Jewish people who God had been working in and choosing for so many years. It was mysterious to say Not just God loves them, but, like, they're actually heirs. They're part of the family. We're in this together, and we better figure out how to do that. How true is that same sentiment these days? It seems mysterious that we might be able to overcome all of these divisions, all of the harm, the many years of exclusion, the ways in which the church has even participated in that. And yet that is actually central to what the gospel message is, that in Jesus, we do have healing, we do have reconciliation, and we do have a common humanity that we can call upon, not to erase our differences or our diversity, but in fact, to begin to celebrate that and live into it. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has this really lengthy and beautiful prayer, um, and it's verses 14 through 21. I'm actually going to grab my Bible and read it. So Ephesians 3, after he talks about this mystery of the gospel, he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So there's this picture here of love overcoming, of love being a power, a powerful force, not an abstract Hallmark Hearts and Valentine's Day power, but a power that actually roots and grounds us, connects us to God, and connects us to one another in a way that can actually overcome our fear and overcome our divisions. There's another place in Scripture where John writes that God is love. It's a very simple statement. It's in 1 John chapter 4, and it's a passage worth considering if you have time. It's also a place where it says, perfect love casts out fear. And so, again, this sense of if God is love, if the nature of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a Trinitarian loop of love, then that is actually the nature of reality. This, again, goes back to what we were hearing this morning, that no, 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 we didn't start as orcs, right? We didn't start in this distorted place. We started as glorious, because God's love is glorious, and God's love is what creation came out of. Because God's love is invitational, it's relational, it's expansive, and it can't even stop, right? It's like it has to pour forth. And so there's this sense in which all of creation came out of God's love and we are being called back to ourselves, back to the love of God, and to participate in God's ongoing work of love here and now. So our job is not to generate the love. Our job is to receive and reflect it. It's a metaphor you may have heard before, but if you think of the moon and the sun, the moon has no light, but the moon, when we see it shining brightly, brightly enough on a full moon to even walk in the dark, what we see is the light of the sun reflecting off of the moon and onto our earth, and that's what we're called to do, is to understand the love of God in such a way that we are receiving it and reflecting it to others, In this passage that Paul writes about love, he says being rooted and established in love. So I did a little work to figure out what that means, um, what roots do. And there are at least three things that roots for a tree offer that tree. They provide nourishment, they anchor the tree, and they connect the tree to other trees, actually. So the analogy may, again, be somewhat obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out that if the soil in in this metaphor is God's love, then the roots are drawing nourishment from God's love so that you may grow. And again, if we're drawing nourishment from the power of fear rather than the power of love, well, then we get distorted. We get turned in on ourselves and we turn away from one another and we become these gated communities where we're just afraid. But if we're rooted and nourished by love, then there's that same sense of expansiveness that comes into our being that is derived from who God is. And then we're anchored so that when a storm comes, the root system going down deep into that soil is what holds the tree up. And storms will come, they will come into our lives individually, they will come into our world, they will come into our culture, and the roots are what anchor us. And then finally, and this I thought was the coolest thing, roots actually connect to other roots. And this is why forests are actually so amazing. Because you can find two trees that are planted nearby in a forest, but one is in like, closer to a rock and doesn't actually have the same soil, same access to the soil as another tree that does. And you can see that they're growing at the same rate. Why is this? Because the tree that has access to more soil is sharing the excess nutrients to the tree that's growing on the rock. And that is actually what roots do. So this is not a passage. It's so easy as American Christians in particular to read everything in the Bible about us individually. Our language even does that for us because we don't make a distinction unless we're in the deep south between you and y'all. But y'all is how to read the Bible. In this passage in particular, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen y'all with power through his spirit in y'all's inner being. Because there is a sense of, no, 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 you're not, And, and he even, he makes it even more clear. Pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, right? So it's all plural. It's do this together, people, because going out, sure, wouldn't it be great if we were all able to be rooted and anchored in love personally, but how much more so if we are collectively, as a community, sharing our resources, loving one another, when we are in times of trial, when that storm is coming, saying, yeah, I'll hold you up, whatever that means, and we'll offer that to the world because this is a limitless supply. We are not in danger of it running out. Check our time. Okay. Um, there's a passage in Mark chapter 5 and it may be familiar to some of you it's a story that gets uh, shared fairly often it's a story of a bleeding woman and I want to read this story and spend a little time because I think here we have a terrific example of Jesus's model of love conquering fear and of what it might look like to participate in healing Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There's so much to take from this passage, but I think it's also, for our purposes this morning, an opportunity to see how love can overcome fear. We see, first of all, that this woman who is nameless, destitute, suffering, considered unclean, which is to say, cast out of community because of her physical situation, um, that she experiences a holistic healing. And here again, the English translation of the Greek doesn't always help us out because the word in Greek that we hear here, read here for her healing comes from the word sotso, and it's the same word for salvation. So in Greek, that divorce between the physical and the spiritual, it's just not present in the same way. Um, It's similar to the Hebrew word shalom, which is not just health as we would mean it, which is to say medical wholeness, but it's health in the sense of the wholeness of the community and of the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. And we see that here because what she's looking for out of her fear, is some physical healing that will stop the bleeding, and then she can go back to her life, and it'll be a little better than it was before. And Jesus says, absolutely not. I wanna see you. And when he sees her, what does he do? He says, daughter. And I'll pause here for a moment because this comes in the context of a man named Jairus, and we'll get back to him. Jairus is asking Jesus for healing for his daughter. So when Jesus calls this nameless woman daughter, he is affirming her as a valuable person. He is saying, let me bring you back to your belovedness. Let me bring you back to how God sees you, to the way in which God is going after you, just like Jairus is going after healing for his daughter. He calls her daughter. So he's restoring her mind, body, and spirit, not just in this physical way alone. So we see this holistic healing, but we also see a social healing because he's doing this in the midst of this large crowd where the disciples are saying, it's ridiculous you're even asking about this. But what happens? Well, in front of everyone, let it be known that she can come back. She now can return to worship in the synagogue. She now can return to family. She can potentially return to economic and certainly social life. Everyone needs to know that. So there's a social healing that's going on in this passage. It's not just about her as an individual, but it's about what it means for the fabric of community to be broken and then restored to have her returned there. The third thing we see is that this healing is participatory. It's so weird for me to read, Your faith has healed you. Well, what on earth does that mean, Jesus? We know your power went out from you to heal her. How could her faith have healed her? And I think what we're getting at and getting those two seemingly contradictory statements in the same passage is that she was not a passive recipient of healing, but an active participant in it. And I think that, again, is an invitation to all of us not to think that our job is to go out and heal the wounds of our culture, not to generate love on our own and make it all better. We see what happens, and perhaps you've seen this in your own life, when well-meaning people go out and try to generate good on their own. But when the love of God is what is rooting and grounding us and connecting us to one another, then out of that place we too can participate and in fact are called to participate in that powerful work of healing in our world. The last thing I want to point out in this passage is that Jairus is witnessing this healing. And we know, again, Jairus is a man, and he's named, and he's the synagogue ruler. So he's a person who's pretty much the opposite of this woman, except for the fact that he also has come to Jesus in need of healing. And what you might expect, right? Jesus pauses, and he heals this woman, and he interacts with her, he restores her to community, You might expect Jairus to feel a bit uncomfortable. In fact, Mark points out three times that he's the synagogue leader, which is not that relevant to the story. And yet anytime in the Bible you see something repeated, it's kind of like highlighted, underlined, and circled. So why does he keep telling us he's the synagogue leader? Well, this woman has been cast out of the synagogue. She's unclean. It is not a stretch to say that Jairus is the one who has excluded her, is the one who has participated in her harm, in fact. And yet what we see here, does Jesus then turn and rebuke Jairus? No, he witnesses the healing for sure. He knows his own need, because he too has come to Jesus and asked for his healing. But Jesus is there to heal the oppressor and the oppressed, the marginalized and the privileged, the powerless and the powerful. And that's something I have come to know personally, especially as it pertains to our daughter. So when Penny was first born, again, I thought the harm that was going on when it came to privilege and exclusion was the harm of exclusion. And we see that. We see that in unjust policies and laws and discrimination. So there's no question that there is harm in exclusion. But what I came to see over time was that the culture that I had always performed within, a culture of whiteness and wealth and education and opportunity was also a culture of saying, your human worth comes from what you do. It comes from proving yourself. And that is a distortion of my humanity. That is where those rates of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, they're just as high, if not higher, among affluent, white educated population as they are in the general population privilege because it distorts our humanity because it tells us a lie about who we are that we are not just beloved creatures of god who have gifts and limitations through which we can relate to one another what it tells us instead is no no you're not beloved unless you earn it unless you work really hard for it and even then you could lose it at any moment So the harm of privilege extends to everyone, to Jairus and to the woman, right? To me and to my daughter and to all of us in our culture. And so we are invited to participate in this healing work of love that Jesus offers. The way I've come to think about how we can participate, what that looks like, there's a bit of a pattern in this passage I just read, so that's one way to remember it. Acknowledge harm, reach out for help participate in healing. Another way, even shorter, to think about it is the head, the heart, and the hands. So use your head, which is to say think about and acknowledge the harm that has been done. So that might mean, as it did for me, acknowledging my own participation and bias against people with um, intellectual disabilities, right? That's a very individual situation. Or it might mean doing some work. I live in a um, little town called Washington, Connecticut, doing some work to understand the history of your church or your town or your community when it comes to, whether that's matters of race or class or disability. There's a town in Guilford, Connecticut, Um, that has recently a group of middle school students decided to research where were enslaved people held in this town? We're going to do that research, and we're going to put stones of remembrance in those places. And we're going to acknowledge the harm that was done in our community, even if it was hundreds of years ago. And the point there is the same as when you go to a doctor. You don't say, oh, no, there's never been anything wrong with my family. (laughs) Because you want the doctor to help you prevent further harm in your body, right? So I go to the doctor and I say, yes, my mother had colon cancer and so did my father's mother which means I get the really exciting prospect of a colonoscopy earlier than everybody else, (laughs) right? Like who wants to sign up for that unless you say, I believe this is a participating in healing, right? So acknowledging harm is the first step, using our heads to actually do that work, to figure out how have I participated in harm, (coughs) what has happened, whether as a recipient of harm or as a participant in it, to see that and to acknowledge that and to confess it. The second thing is to reach out for help, and that's what I call um, use your heart. And for me, again, that reaching out for help happens in two different ways. One is through prayer and through spiritual practice, and that is not, again, just an individual uh, situation but a collective one, to pray together. I, I won't right now unless you ask me about it later, but I could tell many stories of groups of uh, women in particular, but women and men who have been praying together saying, we see that there's harm and we don't know what to do about it. So that is one way to actually participate in healing is to say, help, I don't know what to do, God, help. And we don't know what to do, God, help. But the other way we can use our hearts is to connect to one another, not just in prayer, but in relationships. And so that can come again from finding mentors and especially mentors who are outside of your community It can also uh, come from building friendships. The third aspect of healing is to use your hands. And I think if we do this work of acknowledging harm, using our heads, reaching out for help, we are in less danger of either burning out in terms of going out and wanting to help in the world or perpetuating more harm because of coming with a lack of humility, a sense of superiority, a sense of I'm just going to offer my wonderful gifts to the world rather than I'm going to be in relationships of giving and receiving in which healing is reciprocal, in which I and whoever I am getting to know participating with some sort of healing in where that's not just about me offering, but me offering and receiving in return. And the way we do that can be in individual ways in our own personal lives, but also collectively as institutions, as influential communities together. At the end of this uh, passage I read before in Ephesians, there's a prayer uh, that Paul says, it's a kind of a concluding word where he says, to him who is able, God who is able, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be the glory, right? And I've always heard that a little bit like when, okay, when you're seeing something that's impossible, but you know that's what God would want, you pray for immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine. And I always thought that was going to be God's like shazam from outside, right? Like it really didn't have anything to do with me. I was just kind of a passive prayer that the shazam of God would happen. But when I've been reading this passage recently, what I've noticed is, him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us the immeasurably more is according to his power it is from his love he's the sun, right the source of light, but it is that power at work within us. so when we are praying for immeasurably more, when we are look facing whether it 's in our own lives or in our culture <laughs> fear and division and anger and grief that seems like it can't be overcome, well then the prayer is, Lord, how are we the ones who get to be a part of that? Because what does it look like for your power, the power of your love, to be at work within us? I have seen examples of that power. We can look back in Christian history, certainly, um, whether that's to early Christians who stayed behind um, during times of plague to care for those who were sick and ultimately changed the Roman Empire as a result of it, whether it is icons of the Civil Rights Movement who um, I've been listening to a podcast in which uh, various members, of participants in the Civil Rights Movement have been speaking and so often what they talk about is love and what it meant to be people who believed in love and believed that love was stronger than fear. You think about the example, I don't know if you all know the story of Ruby Bridges. She's a little girl who was a part of integrating uh, public school systems. And a sociologist later on in life said, I'm gonna interview and do interviews of people who've had traumatic experience as children to see how that trauma has harmed them. And so he interviewed Ruby Bridges and he was like, I can't, she had been, went to school every day with white people, I mean, just shouting awful, awful things at her and then went to an empty classroom because no one else would come. So it, and she was six or seven years old at the time. And he interviewed her years later and said, it doesn't seem as though this traumatized you. What happened? How could that not be traumatic? And she said, well, my parents taught me and my church community held me up in praying for those people. So that's what I did every day as I walked that line. So the power of love to overcome fear... Is deep and wide, and it is as expansive as the reality of the universe, right? And yet it's one that we are often um, scared to participate in, but we're invited to participate in it. I'm gonna end just by um, reading a passage. So, you kind of got a summary of this book in um, what I was just saying, uh, although there's a lot more in here. I didn't even talk about the fact that I grew up in a um, a small and functionally segregated town in North Carolina, and that comes up in here. Um, But I'm gonna read just from the first chapter in this conversation about love and fear as a way to conclude, and then I think we'll have a little time for some um, Q&A or conversation. Penny has introduced me to the lives and stories of countless others with intellectual disabilities, hundreds of thousands, millions the world over. I used to think a satisfying life of purpose was available only to people like me self-sufficient, intellectual, able-bodied, affluent people. I've started to see that a satisfying and purposeful life is available to all, especially once we recognize our need for one another. I think back to the time a teenager with Down syndrome sat with William, my fussy, colicky baby boy, and with her calm presence brought more peace to his body than I had ever seen before. Or to my friend, Elisa, whose daughter with an intellectual disability helps time slow down in their family as she walks through their days with gratitude and peace instead of busyness and anxiety. I remember people I've read about over the years, the seminary students who live with adults with intellectual disabilities and grow to love and serve one another. The mother who writes about the profound wisdom and beauty of her adult child who needs constant physical care. The testimony of men like Jean Vanier or Henry Nouwen who lived among people with Down syndrome and received gifts of love and acceptance they had never encountered elsewhere. These stories leave me confident that even the individuals who appear broken by social standards are no more or less broken than I am, no more or less capable of contributing to our world, even if people like me have never learned to value their gifts. The inability to recognize that value is a failure on my part, a failure of imagination and a vision. When I refuse to see myself as sharing my humanity with people with Down syndrome, with people whose bodies function differently than my own, with people of a different ethnicity or skin color or socioeconomic status, I cut myself off from seeing my own need. As I weave a web of invulnerability, I cut myself off from allowing others to love me. The logic of self-sufficiency is a logic of loneliness. We have learned that love in all its vulnerability and need is stronger than fear. That while some people judge Penny's life, most welcome her. That her doctors and teachers care for her with delight. That strangers and friends haven't retreated from us, but instead have been drawn near through Penny's welcoming presence as much as through their own willingness to receive her. If I could go back to myself as a new mother holding her newborn baby, and hearing the words down syndrome and crying and feeling the fight of fear and love inside her chest, I would tell that frightened mother to trust her love, to trust that love will always be stronger than fear. Now fear has receded, leaving only a trace of its presence like a line of seaweed after the tide flows out. Love remains. Mm. So I'm going to officially say we're done, but I'll be here and would love to talk more with any of you. And and honestly the book's on the book table, so you can do that too. All right.